day by day, and uh, praise the Lord for that. We're continuing to pray for you, brother Stephanie, uh, this, this today. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, we, as Ross said, happy Mother's Day out there uh, to all the mothers. Uh, we know, we often say this is a complicated day. Uh, it's a day of celebrating. Uh, it's also just, it hits on some hard... Um, Hard emotions for many of us, and many different, for many different reasons. And so we just come with our joys and our sorrows uh, to celebrate our good father on this Mother's Day. Uh, but we, we love each one of you who are mothers here today, and I'm uh, so glad you're here with us and celebrate you and, by God's grace, who he is um, transforming you to be. And so we, uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes you just, this just happens, um, that we're today on Mother's Day, we're going to be talking about infidelity. So I don't know who planned this, but... I, I just, it's the way the text fell, so I'm so sorry, moms. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we want to ask at the outset here this morning, how is a marriage ruined? And along with that, how can a marriage be restored? Can a marriage be restored? We know this touches on some sensitive areas for us, so we enter into this conversation by God's grace. Um, one of my, my favorite book of all time, the massive novel um, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy's opening line of the novel, he says this, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Uh, and by the way, every, unha- every family deals with unhappiness in one way or another. Now we know there are many different ways to ruin a marriage. It could be overwork, somebody who chose to be married to the job, a neglect, like you might, and you might even be right next to that person, but yet you are millions of miles away relationally. It can be death by a thousand cuts, little comments and reactions that pile up. It can be a years and years long a tennis match where you're lobbing retaliation back and forth at one another. It can be blatant covenant breaking like adultery. It can be also slightly more subtle of emotional uh, unfaithfulness or pornography. But there are also ways that a marriage can be restored. Depends on how it was broken, of course, but it always requires repentance, like acknowledging uh, you've done something wrong and being willing to change. It almost always requires repentance on both parties' sides to some degree. Often there's mediation that's necessary, uh, someone that you can both trust to get you back in the room together talking to one another. We always need trust to be restored in that process. And it must become a habit or a habit again for both sides to be devoted to the other and put the other's need ahead of their own to return to the marriage vows that were once made. We also see in in the Bible, marriage marriage is shown to point beyond itself. That marriage in the Bible is a metaphor for our relationship with our Lord and Creator God. And specifically here in our study, through, through the book of Exodus, uh, uh, God is taking his people Israel on a journey, rescuing them out of Egypt to form a, a covenant, a monogamous relationship with his people, to be devoted to him for the sake of the world. And we didn't get to this a few weeks ago, but in Exodus chapter 24, there's this scene on the top of Mount Sinai uh, where God and his people uh, essentially walk through this marriage ceremony together. They even take vows. You see in verse 7 it said, uh, Moses took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all the Lord has commanded. You hear the vow here, I do. They say, we do, we will do what we are covenanting to do. And, and then they have this 
kind of a, a weird left turn in the marriage ceremony. Uh, they, they splattered blood all over this altar, which was symbolically where God's presence was. And then there's blood splattered all over the people from an, an, animal's, uh, an animal that had been sacrificed. Now, if any of you are getting married soon, I wouldn't recommend that one. But sand, rope, that's all good, but don't do the blood splattering. That's, just, that's gross. Um, but in essence, they were saying, may what just happened to this animal happen to me if I break my end of the covenant. This is serious, right? It's cross my heart, hope to die. And, but this morning, uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 32, and, and we're going to already find, like the covenant is just being formed, and we're already going to find Israel cheating on God, so to speak, breaching the covenant. And we're going to see how Israel ruins the covenant, but then how it can also be restored. And we ask the question, what does this teach us today? Because we, too, are invited into covenant faithfulness, called to covenant faithfulness with our God and through him uh, to one another as a, as a spiritual family. So let's first look at the affair. We're going to be in, in Exodus 32. Again, doing a new thing, not having the verses on the screen. Get us into the word together. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses... The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears, brought them to Aaron. He took, them, gold, took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. So Israel, while God is on the mountain with Moses, writing down the terms of the covenant, they're already down here breaking it. They don't even make it through the honeymoon. This is like some chump at his own wedding reception hitting on the server, right? Bro, oh, player's got to play. No, you are a fool, right? And, and it's a weird, did you notice the sentence? This is a straight, it says, Israel, these are your gods who brought you from the land of Egypt. Now, there's a gold calf, so why are they saying plural, these are your gods? Is this... Is this supposed to represent God? Is this another God? What exactly is going on here? Well, it's tricky because in the Hebrew, the word here they use, Elohim, can be a plural word. It can mean one God, the God of gods, or it can be singular, uh, now, or the singular or plural. Now, without getting all Hebrew nerdy on you, essentially the verbs around it are plural, which is why they translate it here, your gods. Uh, very likely, what they're actually saying is that God up on the mountain up there and the God right here in front of us in the form of a calf. These gods are the gods that have brought you out of Egypt. But either way, it doesn't really matter because they are, either way, violating the first three commands that God has given them. Other gods than him. A carved image and falsely bearing his name. The ink is still drying on the certificate and Israel is violating its commands. Now, why, why is this so bad? What's so bad about attributing uh, to this golden calf uh, the, the, the nature of God? Well, at the heart of idolatry, it's a refusal to take God at his word. It's a refusal to take God at his word. It's a, it's a trust issue. God's promise to be faithful as a bridegroom to Israel. 
to lead them into the promised land, to fight their battles, to drive out their enemies, and to, to dwell with them in the land forever. And if they just follow their bridegroom faithfully, right? But, but Israel says, nah, we're going to hit on the server instead. Israel, a part of idolatry, is walking by sight, not by faith. And what they've done here is they've fashioned a God of their own design, a God they can touch, they can see, and let's be real, a God they have control of. This is a God on their terms. It's a God on their schedule. Now, who is really God in that situation? They are. This is a good idolatry test for us. If, if your God never seems to disagree with you, like you have a pocket version of a God who's really just bidding your will. And the other reason idolatry, it's tricky because it's usually very subtle. If you notice here in the, in the text, they say we're offering sacrifices to the Lord. They're doing all the things that were outlined in the commandments, but they're directing them at a false version of God. And, and really, what they're doing here is they're adding on to Yahweh. It says, we worship, that we worship the God up on that mountain where Moses is and this God right here. And this is often the case with idolatry, that it's not so much uh, substitution as it is addition. And, and I do this in my own heart all the time. In other words, I trust Jesus and, and you can fill in the blank, I trust Jesus and my performance. I trust Jesus and also I put trust into my political party. I trust Jesus, and, but I also need this relationship over here. Uh, I depend on Jesus, but also my own creature comforts and my own security system. Watch out, that Vivint guy. They're all over the place right now. Right? <laughs> now, the whole idea behind monotheism, that's a big word. It says, well, worship of one God. Mono, one, theos, theos, God. So we worship one God. And, and the idea behind, it's like monogamy, right? That basically, spiritually, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. That, that we're saying, there's no one else to turn to. And I wait for my one God and him alone to speak and to act. And to fulfill his promises in his time and in his way. Unlike polytheism, poly meaning many. Polytheism says, I got a God everywhere I need one. I got a God up on the mountain, and I got a God right here as a calf. I got a God in a box. And I got a God with a fox, right? Oh, there's always someone else I can turn to. If this God's not giving me what I want, I'll just turn to this next one. And, and really, in, in the form of adultery, isn't that what we're doing sexually? I'll just try the next sexual high. Maybe, maybe we'll go with a blonde this time. Try a different personality. The sexual idol of our own design. That's one of the things that makes pornography so dangerous. It is completely selfish. It's completely objectifying. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. The other thing about idolatry, number five, is that it domesticates God. It domesticates God. The, the God up on the mountain is scary. I don't want to go up the mountain. Give me a diet version of God. This is essentially what we often do this with other humans. So when, when Israel asks for a, a human king instead of bowing the knee to Yahweh, what they're saying is we, want somebody, we don't want to go directly to Yahweh. And we'll do this oftentimes. We'll live off like a, a secondhand spirituality from our pastor or a podcaster or whoever. And instead of going directly to God, we go through somebody else. Because, man, direct access to God, that's, that's scarier, right? That's harder. That's more demanding. It's more confusing. So tell me about God, but don't make me go directly to God. And finally, it, it it's leads to destructive living. It's interesting here in verse 6 says the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. 
Most likely, this is not a tea party. This was, this was a euphemism for all forms of, of sexual immorality. And this is what happens when wrong theology leads to wrong morality. And we have plenty of examples of that today, don't we? But let's not get cocky because that's being dealt with in our own hearts as well. One of the hardest things about faith is the waiting. Like, it's, you see verse 1, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. He delayed, in, in their minds. Now, what's he really doing? He's receiving instruction from God for their sake. But it doesn't fit in to their time frame. And so, because they feel like Moses is taking too long, they make something, a God, that they can see, and they can see him right now. Ironically, all they had to do was look up. God was right there, thunder and mountain, thunder and lightning on the top of the mountain with Moses. But instead of looking up to their God, they looked down at a false version of God. And we do this all the time. We wrestle with this. We make assumptions about God. We assume that God's absent because we don't see him. God, if you're real, if you are really real, why aren't you showing up right now the way that I want? That we make assumptions that, that God must be wrong because we don't understand him. How can a good God let this happen to me in my life? We make assumptions about God that he's been faithless. But the problem is that we're not understanding what God has and has not promised. And oftentimes we're holding God to a promise that he never made. God never said we wouldn't have troubles in our lives. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles. And God gets the glory when we put all the egg, our eggs in his promise basket. When we trust that his word can bear the weight and cling to his problems, to, excuse me, cling to his promises, no matter how bleak it gets. See, God, God wants us to come with our doubts. He wants us to come with our fears and our anger and our despair, but he wants us to come to him with those things. The most honest prayer I know of in the Bible is, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Israel wanted to make an invisible God visible. They wanted to make him more accessible to themselves. Funny part is, if they had just waited on the Lord, that actually was coming. There was a day coming when the invisible God would be made visible, that would be made more accept accessible to us. And this is what he, uh, Colossians 1 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. God came in visible form, but it was not in the form of a golden calf. It was as the Lamb of God, and that is not a God that we get to contain or lead around, because he is also the lion of Judah. Let's look next at the appeal. We see the affair, the, the people break the covenant. Now there is an appeal made by Moses, starting down in verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once, for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted, acted corruptly. I love that. The Lord says to Moses, hey, your people that you brought up, right? It's like when you look at your spouse and go, hey, your kid that you raised is throwing a tantrum over there, right? Go deal with it. Verse 8, they have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. God's mad. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. And no, notice here, they've broken the covenant, so they deserve to die. God is not being irrational or unfair here. 
They just, what did they just say? May what happens to this bull that we just killed happen to us if we break the covenant. And then they broke the covenant. God would be right in killing them. And then he, he presents a test to Moses. Notice what he says. I'm going to destroy Israel, and the end of verse 10, I'll make you into a great nation. He says, hey, I'm going to wipe these people out and start over with you, Moses. How does this sound, Moses? Father Moses had many sons. Look. And man, he's like, that's a, that's a good ring to it. There's a test here, just like Jesus in the wilderness, when Satan says, hey, forget about God's way through the cross, right? I, I can make you king. I can give all that to you if you'll just bow down to me right now. But just like Jesus, Moses passes the test here. Instead of saying, yeah, that sounds good, I'll start over. Look at verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people who brought you brought out of the land of Egypt? No, these are your people, God. <laughs> With great power and a strong hand. No, you brought him out. No, you brought him out, right? They're pushing back and forth. He appeals to God here on, the, on two, the, two grounds. Let's look at this. Verse, first of all, verse 12, he, oh, he's going to intercede for the people. And then he's going to first of appeal on the grounds of God's glory. Look at verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, he, meaning God, Yahweh, brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. He says, God, the people of Egypt are going to go, wait a second. That God rescued his people from us just to kill them in the desert? What kind of a God is that? That's not a good God. That's not a gracious God. That's not a kind God. That's not a powerful God. He appeals for, God, on, for the sake of God's own glory and reputation. Second appeal is on the basis of God's promise. Look at verse 13. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, you swore to them by yourself and declared, and here's promise language, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. He says, God, you made a promise, and if you destroy these people, you're going back on your word. Moses is simply praying God's promise back to him here. He's saying, Lord, you promised to make Abraham this great nation and bring him into this land. Lord, you have staked your reputation and your renown on the fate of these people. And so that the world will know that you are a God who is both willing and able to keep his promise. Spare these people. Well, what happens? His appeal is granted. Look at verse 14. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he had said he would bring on the people. This, this is crazy. So God is going to destroy Israel. Moses makes an appeal, and now God is not going to destroy the people of Israel. Do you see what happened in this exchange? One of the great mysteries of how our God works is that he, in his word, has shown us he's going to accomplish, very often, his purposes through the prayers of his people. Now, it's important to see, Moses didn't change God's mind like as a counselor. God's like, that's a great point. Moses totally forgot about that promise, right? That's not what's going on here. Moses has been invited into this intercessory process. And this is what Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored as holy. That's his glory, his reputation we're praying for. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now think about that. Why do we need to pray, God, your will be done? Isn't God's will going to be done whether or not we pray it? We just sang, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Well, James, we said, you have not because you 
ask not. And the Bible teaches that God's will will be done, but part of his will is to respond to the prayers of his people. This is a mystery. I don't have my head fully wrapped around either. But this should cause us to do some reflecting and some action. Because we, like Moses, are invited to appeal for the sake of others. And God, in your word, Matthew 18, Jesus said, I will build, excuse me, Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so God, we're holding you to that promise. And for your reputation and your renown, would you send out harvesters into the field? Would you save the lost? And would you grow the found for your glory according to your promise? Hallelujah. Church, let's be a people who, like Moses, we would pray earnestly, that we would pray expectantly according to his promises and pray unceasingly. So Israel cheats on God, but God forgives them. Is it all good now? We're just back to the honeymoon? Not quite. Let's look at the aftermath here. It gets a little it's a left turn here. First of all, the bitter consequences of sin, verse 19. As he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses is like, huh? He became enraged, just like his God, and threw the tablets out of his hand, smashing them at the base of the mountain. And this is amazing. Verse 20, he took the calf they had made, burned it up, ground it to powder. He scouted the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Like he's going Chuck Norris here, right? He grounds it up, drink it! Like he's mad. He's going to ham on these people. And just like those smashed tablets, this is what sin does, you guys. It shatters our lives. It shatters trust. It shatters relationships. It shatters marriage. And just like Israel drinking this gold dust, like sin has bitter tasting consequences. Bobby Jameson ran through a few of the ways that sin shatters. Sin hurts others. Sin tempts others to join us in sin. Sin provokes others to sin in response to being sinned against. Sin smears God's reputation. We're called to bear his name. We're lying to the world about who God is when we sin. Sin makes it harder to repent. It hardens our hearts. It makes it harder to resist sin the next time. Sin wounds our conscience. Sin weakens our faith. Sin welcomes in doubt and unbelief. Sin turns our heart from God, and sin deadens our hearts toward God. Devastating consequences. Now, it's important to note here, there is a difference between forgiveness and consequences. In Christ, we are forgiven for our sins, fully and forever. We do not have to bear the weight of that guilt and shame. We do not have to spend an eternity apart from Christ because of the forgiveness in Christ. And yet, that doesn't mean that there's not consequence to our sin. There's an important difference. If I murder someone, and I stand before the judge, and I say, sorry, Jesus forgave me, Your Honor, he says, I don't care, you're going to jail, right? There's still consequence for my actions. God did not destroy Israel, but there will be consequence. Then we see the blame shifting produced by sin, verse 21. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these, pe what did these people do to you? <laughs> I love that. What did these people do to you that you have led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. Now you notice that Aaron just called his brother, my Lord, I see if my brother Jeremy will get into that one. We'll see. I don't doubt it. Uh, you, you yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go up before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said, 
to them, whoever has gold, take it off, they gave it to me. And when I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Whoa! This makes the dog ate my homework look like Pulitzer Prize stuff here. Like, what an idiot. They, so, but this is Adam and Eve in the garden all over again, right? This is Aaron passing blame and making the lamest and dumbest excuses. But this is the, this is the knee-jerk reaction to sin. We blame shift, like a hammer on the knee. We sin, blame shift, sin, blame shift. Like, it's just how we do it. How, and I've seen this in my own life, you guys, like how quickly my heart gets darkened and foolish by sin. And I start making these ridiculous excuses and explanations in my own head, and I start saying, well, it wasn't my fault, and I make myself the martyr. We're so good at, doing, at avoiding at all costs, simply saying, that's on me. Proverbs 28 speaks to this. It says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they'll receive mercy. See, the best thing that we can do is to repent. That means to simply say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and I love you. Would you forgive me? The first step in repairing a relationship, whether it's a human relationship or with our Lord, is owning what we've done. Repentance hurts, right? It's embarrassing, it can bring consequence. There is a cost to repentance, but look at me. What is the cost of not repenting? And we've already seen, we've seen this play out in our lives, right? What is the cost of not repenting? Finally, we see the befitting wages of sin. Uh, verses 25 to 29. Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, making them a laughing stock to their enemies. And, and that's the, God's reputation right there, see? And, and, and Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, every man fasten his sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you is to kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. Notice it didn't say mother in there, happy Mother's Day. Um, <laughs> the Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. After Moses said, today you have been dedicated to the Lord, each man went against his son and his brother, therefore... You have brought a blessing on yourselves today. This is a hard story. Um, God authorizes some of his people to kill some of his other people. In a lot of ways, you notice it was the Levites. They're the priests. And this is, this is them enacting their job to protect the holiness of God and the purity of Israel. Important to see here, though, this is God's judgment. In verse 27, he says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. This is not people just going rogue and murdering other people. This is, and we see this in the Bible, that God gives authority at times. Genesis 9 and Romans 13, he gives the governing authorities the, the, the right to kill for, being, for, for those who kill. Also notice here the opportunity for repentance. Verse 26, stood at the camp of the entrance and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. He gives them an opportunity to say, I did it. I am part of this idolatrous people who come forward in repentance. The sobering reality is that sin deserves death. This is what Romans says. That the appropriate payment for sin is death, separation from God. John Owen said it this way, you will kill sin or it will kill you. 
This is really what Romans 8 says. For if you live according to the flesh, according to sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit, notice not your own power, but by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We either put our sin to death, or the Spirit does it, or sin will put us to death. Those are our options. This really puts us in a corner, doesn't it? What do we do? Well, you look at the last point here, the atonement. Think about in your life, who would you die for? I know most parents say they would, in a heartbeat, they would die for their wayward or ailing child. In, in, in Romans 9, Paul says, if I could, would it be that I could die for my unbelieving countrymen, those Israelites who had rejected Christ? But, but the problem is, it doesn't really work like that usually, right? Like, I can't save someone else. Most times, the scenario is not I can die or they can die. And similarly here, Moses appeals to God to die for the people, but God says it can't work like that. Look at verse 30. The following day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, if you won't forgive them, Moses says, please erase me from the book you have written. Erase me from the book, God, not them. But verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from the book. Do you notice here what God is saying? It says, God, Moses, you can't die for their sin. You're a sinner too. It, it's whoever sinned against me. I will hold each person accountable for their sin. Now, look at verse 34. Now go, God says, lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel uh, will go before you. He'd already promised that. But... On the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. So here God says, I will continue to be faithful. I told you I would bring you into the land, and I'm going to do that. But these people at Judgment Day will still stand before me accountable for their own sin. Verse 35, and the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. What did he inflict on them? A plague. And what that same word the word that's used at the beginning of our story, the plagues he inflicted on the Egyptians. Underlining here, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are Egyptian, an Israelite, or an American today, that each of us will be held accountable to the Lord for our own sin. And this backs us into a bit of a corner, right? How can God keep his promise to rescue Israel and rescue us. He made that promise all the way back in the Garden of Eden and yet still rightly, justly, fairly hold us accountable for our sin. Here Moses was able to stave off some of God's judgment, but not forever because he was not an acceptable sacrifice for Israel. But one day, an acceptable sacrifice, the invisible God made visible in the form of a man would come as the spotless lamb himself. And the bridegroom laid down his life for his adulterous bride. In the words of Moses, Moses said, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you've written. And here God said, Father, Jesus from the cross cried out what? Father, forgive them. Temporarily, Jesus was forsaken so that my name, so that your name could be written in the lamb's book of life with the blood of the Lamb, and that blood is permanent ink. Jesus became our perfect mediator that Moses could not be, so that our sins would be punished, not on us, but on him. 
so that that made God able to be faithful and just to bring his people home. Israel's marriage with the Lord is off to a pretty rough start, isn't it? We see infidelity right out of the gate. And without a me- what we're seeing here with Moses, without a mediator, they are hosed. And we are in no better of a situation. I've seen up close and personal marriages ruined by infidelity. Some of them never to recover. I've also seen marriages restored. Where there's been confession. Someone willing to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I love you. And where there was willingness to forgive. When there was a willingness to say, I forgive you. And I love you. Come home. Every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. But there is only one way for any family to be made right. I have never seen true heart reconciliation accomplished apart from the mediating presence of Jesus Christ. The world says, man, this is crazy. You don't take someone back. They get their comeuppance. You give them the NSYNC treatment, baby. Bye, bye, bye. This kind of confession and forgiveness toward others only makes sense in light of the gospel. And we know we have been forgiven. And it gives us a place to operate freely, to be able to confess freely. Because I'm not going to be judged by that. I'm not going to receive con- condemnation. Yes, there will be consequence when we have to come back and repent. But what is the cost of not repenting and not relenting? And whether you have never come home to your heavenly Father through the Son or you're one of his children who's been wandering out there in adultery or idolatry. There is only one path home. But look at me. There is a path home. Let me do some heart work between you and the Lord. I can't do it for you. In what areas do you need to exercise repentance, confession, forgiveness before the Lord and before another? Don't let the sun go down. Let us not be like Aaron, a people who try to cover up our sin. It only makes it worse. But a people who can freely confess our sin and find our covering in Christ and in Christ alone. Father God, thank you for the cross of Christ. Lord, we acknowledge, just like Israel... That even like, out of one side of our mouth, we, we could be saying, I believe. But on the other side of our mouth, we're playing the part of the harlot. Lord, each one of us lacks the ability to be faithful to you the way you've called us to. But Lord, that didn't catch you by surprise. When you made Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, when you, when you made Israel and put them in the Sinai Peninsula. And it certainly does not throw you off. When you called us out of the, the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light, then we continue to run around on you. Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I just pray for anybody in this room, whether they are yet a believer or a part of our family, the path is the same, that today your spirit would help them to put to death those deeds of the flesh, to freely confess to you and to those they need to repent to, to find forgiveness in your sight, to find healing and restoration available. We can't control how the other party will react, but that's not our call. We are held accountable before you, not for them. Father, may we be a people that pursue peace, finding it only first in the gospel 
And then out of that cup of joy, may it overflow to restoring relationships with people all around us. We need you, Jesus. Oh, how we need you. And we have you fully today and forever. It's in your forgiving name that we pray. And all God's people said.